The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Is President Trump going to pardon Roger Stone? That's the word inside the beltway. No response from the White House. Multiple reports, though, that that is what the president is considering. The latest political gossip, as Tom Keene would call it. Plus, we dive into the policies of former vice president, now presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden's economic plan with my exclusive interview with Penny Pritzker. She's the former U.S. Commerce Secretary, helped draft the plan, folks. She was one of the people helping Joe Biden draft this plan. Penny Pritzker, I'll bring you that. I'm going to talk to uh, Brad Winstrup, a Republican, French Hill, Republican from Arkansas, uh, and CMS Administrator Seema Verma. You don't want to miss these interviews. We're diving headfirst into policy. Uh, this is a storm gets ready to ravage, a tropical storm gets ready to ravage our friends up there in New York. We made it to Friday, folks. I thought it would never come on Monday. And then here we are. I hope everyone has a great weekend. And we have a full coverage for you across uh, ideological spectrum. So we're going to kick things off tonight with fresh reaction from one of the key architects behind Democratic presumptive nominee Joe Biden's economic plan. I sat down exclusively via Zoom, signed to the Times folks, earlier today for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio with former President Barack Obama's Commerce Secretary, Penny Pritzker. She was very instrumental advising the Biden campaign on workforce development. This, as the Biden campaign looks to target, really, something that President Trump has consistently led Biden on in the polls. No, not nationally and not for support, but on the economy. I asked her, what would a Biden plan on the economy do for America? Take a listen to what she told me. The vice president has put out a plan that I think is one that will help create greater certainty in America, which is really important. Key components of the plan are, first of all, investing in infrastructure, procurement, and R&D. $400 billion for infrastructure and procurement, uh, and $300 billion to invest in very important areas of R&D, sectors of the economy that we as a country need to lead in. Clean energy, batteries, AI, 5G. This is the largest investment in these areas since World War II. And, and it's really interesting because he framed this as, uh, first, firstly, uh, the response that is needed uh, to face this moment, especially given the dynamics of, the, of COVID-19. But also he said he wanted to end the era of shareholder capitalism. Why is that important? Well, I think what you're seeing is, in, you know, this country is facing really three crises. 
a pandemic, an economic crisis, and also we're having a national reckoning with racial inequality. And what you're seeing is the vice president saying, we have to address all three of these crises simultaneously. And what it, I think it's consistent with where American corporations are going, which is a recognition that their stakeholders are not just shareholders, but it's employees, it's customers, it's shareholders, it's the communities in which they operate. And so I think this is completely consistent with where the country is moving. You know, I, I hear you talk about the, the need for certainty. And you, you're seeing, especially in, in the markets over the past couple of weeks, this adjustment of sorts. But it's not just on Wall Street where you're seeing this adjustment uh, towards maybe a, a, a the possibility of a Biden presidency. But why is that certainty needed as for, for Main Street and for small businesses as well? Look, it's really hard to plan when you have absolutely no idea what are the rules going to be are we going to be able to have an open economy? Are we going to be a healthy nation? And so, you know, the vice president recognizes the first thing we have to do is deal with the nation's health and make sure that everyone has appropriate health care and that we beat this pandemic. But the second thing is, if I'm a small business owner, I'm someone trying to plan to open my restaurant or open my shop on Main Street, I have no idea whether people are going to be out and about, what are the rules going to be, what do I need to do to protect my employees? How do I make my customer feel comfortable? These are the kinds of things that need to be clear and they don't need to be something that's different from one community to the next, but rather we should have a uniform standard as to how, you know, what the behavior and what expectations are uh, to be met. Let me follow up on this because it, it's one thing to plan in the short term and, and you know, we're hopeful for a vaccine by the end of the year or even in the first quarter of next year. But even beyond that, once there is a vaccine, once COVID-19 is behind us, how do we rebuild the economy, Secretary, so that it's, it's stronger but also more inclusive, especially from a workforce development standpoint? Absolutely. You know, it, it, Goldman Sachs estimates that we're going to end the year with about 9% unemployment. 18 million people have lost their jobs and uh, who were employed just four or five months ago. We've got a big hill to climb and a lot of work to do to put folks back to work. One of the most important things we need to do is make sure that, that our workforce is trained for the opportunities and the jobs that exist today and into the future. And that's something the vice president's really behind which is making sure that upskilling is easily available, that education is uniformly available to everyone, no matter what community you're in. And so there's a lot of work that we have to do to make opportunity uh, uniformly available to everyone in this country. All right, before I let you go, I do want to ask you about uh, Illinois, because I know that you have been deeply involved uh, with the recovery effort uh, for, for underserved communities in Illinois. Uh, what, what can you tell me about how, you, about how philanthropy sometimes, and you know this, has to step in more readily, more responsive, faster to, to pick up this, the, the, the lag time, so to speak, for lack of a better word, for where the federal government and bureaucracy can't compete as quick? Leading the Illinois COVID Relief Fund has shown me really two major things. First of all, very generous people stepped up really early, early to mid-March, and said, we're going to put up $30 million to be made available very quickly to the, those who were suffering, suffering basic needs, needed food, needed shelter, needed help with utilities, needed help with health care. 
And frankly, we were able to get to folks much faster than the government was in the very short run. Then the government came in and really was able to address these issues on a much broader scale than philanthropy was. The other thing that I learned from uh, leading the Illinois COVID Relief Fund is really the cracks that we have in our social safety net. Our African-American and our Latinx communities are really, really suffering. Three, four, five times being, uh, the rate of uh, coronavirus, not only getting the disease, but then also deaths. And that really has to do with underlying weaknesses in our healthcare system for those communities. And we need to shore up our social safety net. And I know that we'll see the vice president really step up in those areas as well. That was my exclusive interview with Patty Pritzker, the former Commerce Secretary in the Obama administration. Coming up, we check in with Seema Verma of the CMS, the CMS Administrator. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. Check out all my interviews cross-platform on Bloomberg.com or on any of our respective apps. Keep it right here, folks, on Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. You know, I was uh, watching Bloomberg Surveillance with uh, Tom Keen, Lisa Bramowitz, Jonathan Farrell. And I hear from Tom, you know, he's got his little puppy. I don't know if it's a puppy, a small dog, a lap dog on his lap. And he's petting the dog and he's saying, hey, he's going back to the office. He's going back to the New York headquarters on Monday. You know, and I just got it. It reminded me because, uh, you know, I learned from Tom a lot. Uh, just how grateful I am for our team, from Sir Nicholas Falco. I said, Nick, what's your title? He goes, Sir, Sir Nicholas Falco, who's running the boards for us today, uh, as well as Christine Barada, Matt Shirley, McDevitt, Sutcherman. You know, we're all working from home. We're all doing our best. Uh, So thank you, team. Proud to be a part of it. Uh, Let's get to another exclusive interview that we did this week with Seema Verma. Seema is the CMS administrator. And she runs everything with, like, Medicaid, Medicare, you know. So uh, I asked her about the new rulemaking. Take a listen to my interview. Here it is. I want to ask you, uh, on November 1st of 2019, CMS issued a final rule which would enact payment restrictions to non-evaluation and management services in the Medicare system. After COVID and seeing the need for some of these health services, do you think that rule's got to be postponed until until we are through this, or do you think we could still follow through with that? Well, it's a couple of things to know about this rule. First of all, this rule was trying to reduce the burden that physicians face every day with the Medicare program. We know that there's just a lot of challenges in billing, and they, they spend, you know, unfortunately more time away from their patients, and this rule is designed to give them more time, face-to-face time with their patients. Um, the other thing that it does is it, it really reimburses physicians for the time that they're spending with their patients. A lot of times the way the system has worked in the past is that it doesn't really advantage those providers, our primary care doctors that are on the front lines dealing with our patients that have multiple comorbidities. You know, a lot of our patients now have diabetes, hypertension, and a lot of different disease issues all going on at once. And they need more time with their doctors. And so the changes that we made um, reimburse providers for spending time with their patients and reducing their burden. So, and, and, and even during this, and you know this, Administrator Verma, during 
this crisis, the elderly have been incredibly, incredibly impacted, both from a psychological perspective in terms of not being able to be with loved ones for their own safety uh, and, and, and economically as well. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious about Medicare and whether or not you think, as we stare down the potential for another economic stimulus, whether or not Medicare payment increases might be something on the table for right now. You know, one of the things that we've done in the Medicare program is provide accelerated uh, payments for our providers. So if they've had trouble, our health care providers have had trouble with finances, they've been able to seek loans from the Medicare program. The other thing that we've done is so that the president's been focused on and, and uh, he is, is signing the CARES Act. And that actually provided $175 billion to providers across the country. We know that providers have been hit hard. They have increased costs for personal protective equipment. Many of them haven't been able to uh, perform elective surgeries, and many of them have closed down their practices. So those funds um, are there to help the healthcare system deal with the impact of the coronavirus. That being said, I can tell you um, from the Medicare program is we're starting to see services come back up. We're seeing a lot of our patients accessing telehealth services, which is one of the things that the president did from the very beginning uh, to make sure that our Medicare beneficiaries could communicate with their providers while they were sheltering in place. Do you think we have enough doctors in the Medicare system? Because so, with, with so many people getting sick, or is that is that something people should be concerned about or no? You know, I think generally we're, we're adding uh, 10,000 new beneficiaries wow. to the Medicare program every single day. So the needs uh, on the health care system and the impact are significant. But that's why the president has been focused on workforce challenges. That's why we've been providing more flexibility to the health care system, especially during COVID, so that we can augment the workforce. We're allowing providers to operate at the top of their license, whether it be our nurse anesthetists, also providing more flexibility for nurse practitioners so that we can make sure that um, especially those uh, hot spots and areas are able to address the surges and that they have the capacity to address the healthcare needs of their communities. CMS Administrator Seema Verma is on the line. And, and, you know, I'm struck by this because we hear of all of the heroic incredible frontline workers who are just really, you know, they're risking their lives. They're working these incredibly long shifts. And then I get angry because I hear about the fraudsters and I hear about people mm-hmm. taking advantage of, of whether it's the elderly, whether it's, it's uh, folks, you know, anyone really, you know, and they're being fraudulent and they're tricking people into making some telehealth payments. And, you know, I know that this has been something that you've really, you know, pushed back against and, and been trying to stop. So what are what are policymakers, what are you doing in order to make sure that people aren't being, it's it's crazy to me, but that people aren't falling for these fraudsters. Yeah, well, it's disappointing that those fraudsters would try to take advantage it's of awful. the American taxpayer during this very difficult time. You know, we have waived um, hundreds of regulations so that the healthcare system could work better, more efficiently, especially during this time of crisis. And unfortunately, people are taking advantage of it. I can tell you at the agency that we have focused on a very strong plan that for every waiver, for every flexibility, we have a plan to track potential fraudsters. So in telehealth, we've already found some people that were billing for more services that were humanly possible in a 24-hour period. So, you know, rest assured, taxpayers should know that behind the scenes, we're looking for those individuals and we'll do everything we can to, um, to, to bring them to justice. 
And just a final question for you on the issue of telehealth. I mean, it really is the future of medicine. What, what uh, I, I would argue it might be one of the legacies of the of this horrible pandemic is that it's telehealth has really surged to to reprogram really how we view getting access to to our uh, healthcare. But what what advances have been made in the telehealth field during the last couple of months? Well, you know, the president's been focused on making sure that we're bringing innovation, technology and really modernizing the Medicare program. So uh, what we've done from the very beginning, what he's done, and I think this speaks to his leadership around uh, bringing every tool possible to address the coronavirus. And so we made telehealth available not only in the Medicare program, but also in Medicaid. And it's been really important for people because it's allowed them to receive health care in the safety of their home. And it's also helped keep our healthcare workers safe and reduce use of protective equipment. Um, you know, it's been amazing to see the rapid adoption across the healthcare system. Our patients seem to like it. Doctors were reluctant at first, but I think they're recognizing that telehealth can be a tool to increase accessibility of healthcare services. So I've said that this is uh, the, the genie's been let out of the bottle, and I don't think there's any going back when it comes to telehealth. I think the American public have clearly seen that there are uh, that there is a place for telehealth in our healthcare system. That was Seema Verma. Coming up next, Congressman Brad Wenstrup. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Programming note, Kev. That's me. I'm Kevin Cerulli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. And I'm sitting down with Governor Larry Hogan on Monday for an exclusive interview in Annapolis. You don't want to miss it. But first, let's turn to my other interview from this week. Congressman Brad Wenstrup, a Republican. Roll tape. Well, in general, I would say what we're focusing on is is a reopening package. In other words, instead of phase four, five, whatever, that we were talking about reopening phase one. And, and it still addresses the effect of, of, of COVID and its, its effects on our economy. And I think that that's going to be the big push. And we're going to continue to look for any of the glitches in the things that we've already done uh, so that we can maintain a, a, and get back to a healthy economy. Well, whether it's our hospitals, our businesses, our individuals, our small businesses, we have to take a look at all that. We painted things with a pretty broad brush when we first started, and we've seen we've had to make some changes. Extending programs like PPP, I think, is is a great deal for 
what's going on in America today and the needs that people have. And we have to continue to look at things going in a positive direction and, uh, do, and doing it safely. And that's the, that's the conundrum. So, you know, from an economic perspective, especially as economists, congressmen are talking about there being a stepped up recovery with the with the, you know, positive economic indicators end of Q3 beginning Q4. You know, you've just passed significant other significant uh, economic deals, including USMCA, which recently went into effect from an economic standpoint. It's not just the virus, but what else needs to be done in order to get a faster recovery? Well, I think that uh, you, you'll see the administration uh, working with us uh, to to do pro-growth things. Um, you know, I, I think that um, well, there's so many things to look at. And I know I, that I'm, I'm being kind of vague because there, there, there are a lot of opportunities out there um, and to allow people to uh, continue with the tax breaks to maintain more of their income. Um, but we also have to get kids back in school. These, yeah. these are some of the things that we have to do for allow, to allow our economy to take place. And, of course, we have to do it, do it safely. So it's a combination of returning to normal in a, in a safe place in a way that people aren't anxious. And, and so it really comes down – so much of this is involved with health, right? And so as, as you look, we have got to look at the virus itself and continue to go in positive directions medically, which we have done uh, with treatments. Uh, you're seeing far fewer people uh, uh, dying. You're seeing people that have recovered and they have convalescent plasma. They can help the next person. Those are things that we need to do to build confidence in, in our society in general. Um, and, we would, and when we do that, we can eliminate some of the other things that have been happening uh, because people aren't at work or they are shut down. We see an increase in suicides, domestic violence, all these things that are negatives for us. So we have to take a look at, at those and make sure that we can reinstitute normal life for a lot of people so that people can go to work because their kids are taken care of at school and afterwards. And all of these things come into play. We have a shortage of, of, of daycare providers. That's a problem for our economy because you can't return to work and just leave your kids at home. All of these things have to be addressed, and I'm going to look for incentives for those types of programs and to encourage more people to go into those fields because there's a definite need there. And if we don't, if we don't address every component of this, People just can't all return back to work, but I am encouraged by the numbers that we have seen in the last couple of months. And, Congressman, I want to pick up on that point because it, it, from an economic standpoint, here we are staring down the next round of economic stimulus negotiations ahead of the August recess. And 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 you, you mentioned about the psychology of the American worker in terms of going back to work. Part of that includes sending your kids back to school and having faith that the school not even, but, but being reassured that sending your, your kids back to school, back to daycare, back to you know elementary school, high school, that they're going to be safe. And so you, you talked about providing incentives for these schools to be able to get access to, to clean facilities and whatnot. How important is that to, to, to reopening the economy? It's really important. And you talk to anybody 
that has employees, especially in small businesses, and that is one of their major concerns, and it's going to be a limiting factor. So we've seen good numbers. We want to see the numbers going up, but those are the things that come into play. And so I represent both urban and rural areas, and it's a very different environment in, in each. I have some counties where their hospital maybe has had zero admissions for COVID or one and, and only one death, and that was with comorbidities. And so they're not understanding the same way a, an urban setting is where you have higher numbers and you have deaths. Cincinnati is not the same as New York, and my rural areas aren't the same as Cincinnati. So how we go about doing that really is going to involve good medical decisions at the local level to build the confidence of, of parents and of kids going to school. The desire is there. I have seen that tremendously. The desire is there to return to that normal, and we just have to do all that we can to allow, especially at a local level, people to provide the safety that's necessary and the confidence of that safety if they're going to go back to, to work and, and be able to send their kids to school. But at the same time, what's really important on people's minds is they don't want their kids missing out on their education. Yeah. And so it's a combination there. So it's a very holistic approach that we need to take because it's not just about the virus. Are we going to have a generation of kids that were uneducated because we're not letting them go to school? That's a problem. And I can tell you, is you know I'm lucky my my son in kindergarten uh, we we get his his teachers online every day and we have his classwork online every day and we can print the programs and do the work with him not everyone has that capability across America and it, we have to recognize that and that's why the importance of continuing to educate our children is really important especially for our workforce not only for today for parents that are working but for the future in, in our workforce. Yeah. Congressman Brad Wenstrup's on the line. He's a Republican, and he serves uh, for Ohio's 2nd Congressional District. He's also an Iraq War veteran and serves as a member of the House uh, Select Intelligence Committee. Uh, and uh, it, that's really where I want to go uh, next in terms of uh, more geopolitical, if, if I could, for a minute. How has the United States collectively been protecting itself against some of what's what's coming out of China? Or how has this been changing the dynamic from Beijing uh, with their lack of transparency, Congressman, in terms of resetting uh, some of the some of the, the geopolitical relationship there? Uh, we have a lot of restructuring to do. And I think that this president was on his way in, in doing that. And I think we're going to continue to do it. And I think it, it's going to happen with the support of Congress because it needs to. I'm uh, I'm a military guy. I did yep. a, I spent a year in Iraq. Also a physician. Very concerned about the World Health Organization. If you're not getting honest data and honest answers out of the the membership, then it's not worth having it at all. And we should just try to, to gather our own data as best that we can. And and so that's a recognized problem. And I and I think the president was right to respond to that in some ways and let it be known that we're not going to tolerate this this type of bad behavior when it comes to the health of humankind. This has affected the entire world. That's one thing. We've also learned a valuable, valuable lesson that I think has really been brought to the forefront and maybe been ignored for for decades now. And that's our supply chain. And so we are going to have to change our economy in a way that manufacturing comes back to the United States, which this president has been doing since the day he took office. 
And that is key. I got asked early on when it was recognized we had a supply chain problem. So what do you do? I said, what this president has been doing, bringing manufacturing back to the United States of America. We're going to have to find ways of doing that. As a military person, if you had told me that my protective equipment and my pharmaceuticals that we got in Iraq were coming from China, I would have said, there is no way. And uh, but that's the situation we're in. And I can tell you right now, we're working diligently to identify where our vulnerabilities are and working to correct that. You know, it's a thread, to be honest, folks. You just heard that from Congressman Brad Wenstrup. It's a thread that we've had in conversations, whether it's Pete Buttigieg or with Brad Wenstrup, about where the U.S. foreign policy is moving on U.S.-China relations. Coming up next, Congressman French Hill calls in live. Republican Arkansas, I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg 991. I'm Kevin Cerulli. I'm Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And again, programming note, Monday exclusive with Governor Larry Hogan, the Republican from Maryland. I'm going to Annapolis. I miss Annapolis. They're letting me out of the Beltway. I'm going to Annapolis. And, um, you know, where do I eat when I'm there? I love that place. There's so many good restaurants in Annapolis. Where should I eat? I'm going to be thinking about it all weekend. Congressman French Hill, Republican from Arkansas. Congressman, you know all the barbecue spots in Arkansas. Where, where, do you ever go to Annapolis? Where do I eat in Annapolis? Well, the number one goal in Annapolis is for you to get a fantastic crab cake yep. lunch. Uh, absolutely. And I've never had a bad crab cake in Annapolis at any location. With some Cajun fries. You know, you got to have the fries mm. with the crab cake. You know? so You got all right. it. All right. I'll you got you know. it. All right, you have an op-ed out in The Hill, Bob Cusack's The Hill, uh, in which you write about how to target some small businesses and streamline the process for PPP loans. And, you know, we're staring down the next round of economic stimulus. You are wrapped up in the negotiations. You're also, of course, on the oversight panel, the bipartisan group that's making sure there's no shenanigans uh, with how uh, the the – the, there's distribution on this. But tell me, uh, what are some of your ideas in order to get small businesses the access that they need to stay alive during this horrific downturn? Well, Kevin, it's important, particularly since we have new cases uh, and we also have had some additional uh, opportunities to close businesses again. So that's why that $130 billion in the Paycheck Protection Program that is not yet spent needs to be extended. I'm so glad Senator Marco Rubio got that done in the Senate. We passed it in the House last week. What I think we need to do to make it better is we have the weeks of flexibility of spending, but we need to allow a business that's still suffering probably to come back to the PPP program. In other words, we need to allow if someone still has severe revenue uh, damage to access those funds. Secondly, you know that we had uh, emergency disaster loans that were offered by the SBA, the EIDL loans. Those were slow. They weren't transparent. It was a bit of a black box. Nobody knew if they were going to get any money or not. I propose that we change that from a disaster loan program and shift it as well out as a bank-originated emergency loan, let the SBA buy those loans out of the banks, 
I think people will be able to access money faster and with more transparency. So those are just a couple of ideas to help our small businesses. Congressman French Hill is on the line. He's a Republican from Arkansas, and he writes in his op-ed in The Hill, uh, quote, the loans allow small businesses to access up to $25,000 while waiting to receive the EIDL. And again, folks, if you're, if you're uh, drowning in alphabet soup, it is the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. And the whole point of it, Congressman, correct me if I'm wrong, is that they get that assistance as fast as possible. Yeah, but here's the deal. I mean, you apply the end of March for one of these SBA disaster loans. You're given a loan number, but you don't hear anything for six or eight weeks. And so that's you don't too know late. If you can count on that Monday night. It's too late. It's too late. And also, when you're assembling all your money you want, you need to know how it's going to come and what pieces. I think if we raise that emergency amount to $150,000, we let the banks originate it and then sell that loan off to the SBA people will know what they've qualified for. And I think it'll be faster and more transparent. And when you're in a desperate mode uh, to find the resources you need to keep your business open, waiting in a black box is not helpful. Well, and, and I, you know, I was speaking uh, about this when I interviewed earlier this week uh, the Small Business Administration's uh, Javita Carranza, and, and she was talking about how this issue of transparency. And there's been this debate. Democrats have argued that uh, everything should be disclosed, who gets what and how much. Uh, but Republicans have argued that uh, that loans for, for less than about $150,000, that maybe it ought to be protected because simply people are entitled to not have their uh, financial records and data out there on the internet, especially if they're a small business. But I got to ask you, Congressman, you know, all week long, and it's not just Republicans, but we've been reading reports of you know, from Kanye West to uh, to allies of Speaker Pelosi to, I mean, you've seen the same headlines, to, to sports teams and, and folks who I think people are scratching their heads thinking, how did they get loans when the, the small business, you know, it, it, all around the country had to wait six to eight weeks for, for the bureaucrats in Washington on both sides of the aisle to get their act together in order to, to find, to give them assistance? How do we stop that from happening? Well, I think we write a better law. You know, back in March when the CARES Act was being drafted in early April, the Senate took out the qualification paragraph on the PPP loans. In other words, the original bill had a definition that you had to have fewer than 500 employees and you had to have a like a 50% loss in revenue before you could qualify uh, for one of those loans. Uh, and so putting a qualification in would more narrowly target the loans. Secondly, uh, look, the Treasury and the Congress wanted money out to help save the American economy, and they did not prohibit public companies from accessing PPP or a sports team or a franchise. In fact, they were very generous about hotels and food franchises. So some of it was intentional, Kevin, to get money out to save as many jobs as possible as quickly as possible. And I, I think that's really important to note because we live in the cancel clickbait culture, right? And, and I hear you on that point because a lot of these, you know, people have their own opinions about everything these days, including businesses, big, small, whatever. And so even I think some of the, some of the reports that I've seen making their way through the social media feeds, it's, it's, we, we forget that there are employees that are working 
all over the country for, for some of these companies. And, and so I hear you on that point. And I think it, it is an important point that I think should be injected into this conversation. I want to switch gears now. Give us a preview of the next round of economic stimulus, because I, I think a lot of people are wondering precisely what this is going to entail. People have been talking all week about the potential for students returning to the classroom. What would you like to see in this next round of stimulus and what's realistic for, for getting signed into law? Well, there's good conversations on a bipartisan basis on both sides of the hill. I'll give you the categories that I think are important. First of all, what are we going to do about the pandemic unemployment compensation piece of $600 flat per week? A lot of employers are saying, look, it's an impediment to me bringing people back to the workforce because it annualizes out to about $50,000 a year. Uh, Douglas Holtz-Eakin suggests that about 60% of the people on pandemic unemployment insurance are making more than they made when they worked. So how do we restructure that to protect families but encourage work? So I think that's category number one. Category number two is guidance for state and local governments. Uh, the uh, National League of Cities says that some 40% of the governors have not shared the CARES Act money with their state and local and county officials. How do we deliver more guidance there that that money can be spent at the state and local uh, level at a lower subdivision of government? I think that's very important. Yeah. Should we broaden it? Should we include broadband, for example? And then President Trump has talked about uh, stimulus checks. Should we do another round of tax rebate checks? And then finally, uh, you brought up a very important issue, which is, and I'm introducing a bill next week, on grants for our teachers to make sure our schools are ready to open. I think wow. it's so important. I get a lot of nervousness from my teachers and from my moms out there. About 60% of people want their kids to go back to school, but they want to do it safely. Exactly. Congressman French Hill, uh, thank you. Because, you know, I, every time I, I interview Congressman French Hill, I get, you know, a, a, a very clear landscape of, of what's headed. Have a great weekend, and uh, I'll, I'll let you know about which crab cake I decided to go with down the, uh, over in Annapolis. Thank you, and again, stay tuned on Monday for an interview with uh, Governor Larry Hogan. I'm Kevin Cerulli. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Thank God it's... God, it's... Ah!